Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. I've decided to have a change in life direction, and inspired by Suzanne Ciani, I'm going to become a jingle composer for advertisements on television. I read that back in 1984, composers earned twenty to thirty thousand dollars per jingle, and so to get my demo done, I'm hopping in my DeLorean and I'm heading back to 1984. I'm going to invest ninety-five thousand pounds in the only way to do it really properly. I fully expect Sinclavia too. Given inflation, I'm expecting most music jobs now probably pay about 200 grand, and Sinclavia itself will probably be worth a few million. Yep, writing music, it's like printing money. Now, if only I could find a way of fitting it in the car. So if you'd like a Synclavia Regen, which fits in a car and is significantly less than £95,000, along with retro-future classics like the Lawmill Double Knot, Paperface Surge, Quitter and Guitari Five Moons and Pocket Piano, along with stacker cables from Tendrils and, in fact, all the coolest gear you could possibly imagine, head to Signalsounds.com. That's Signalsounds.com. Why We Bleep is also sponsored by Thonk.co.uk. Did you think that DIY synthesizer gear is only for people who are so hardcore they were building particle accelerators at age four and theremins at age 19? Well, if you can write your own name and build Lego kits, you too can learn to solder. And to convince you to get started, Thonk, purveyors of easy-to-use DIY kits, would like to share a money-off code for you. Perhaps you could use it to get a Music Thing Microphony V3, which would be a Eurorack module with a line input and an envelope follower and the natty, neat, squitchy touch plate contact thing so that you can tap and scratch your case and affect the results. It's only Emily Gillet's favourite exciter for rings. Or you could get a stereo drive. It's a stereo drive. And it's based on the input stage of a popular American synthesizer that rhymes with Mini Moog. Both perfect first-time kits and very affordable and easy to build. And I'll end this podcast with my actual top tips for soldering. So stick around if you need more convincing. And now, the deal. Until the end of October 2023, first-time Thonk customers can take 10% off the cost of your first order with the code MYLAR4EVER. That is mylar M-Y-L-A-R, the number four, and then E-V-A. This code is only valid for new customers' first orders at Thonk. And if you're an existing customer going, hey, what gives, man? Next month, we have a code for you. So get 10% off your very first Thonk order with the code MYLAR4EVER until the end of October 2023. Build stuff. It's ace. Why? Hey, what gives, man? Yeah, uh, thanks, Thonk, for sponsoring. And thank you for listening. Great grief. Another episode. With only a month past, it's like, it's my job now. So thank you for being here and thank you for listening. Today, we present a conversation with Cameron Jones and Craig Phillips of... Oh, no. 
Oh, no. We have an Akai-Akai Moog-Moog-Moog-Moog situation because the name of the company is actually a bit of an issue. Synclavia is how I might have pronounced this company's name. But I discovered that a number of people pronounce it differently. Synclavia is, in fact, how a number of true diehards pronounce it. And in fact, I discovered that during my conversation, 50% of the company uh, that I spoke to said Synclavia. And then the other 50% said Synclavia. So we don't have a consensus, which is interesting. But I think I'm going to go Synclavia. I actually checked with a French person because Clavier is French. And a real French person, and not just any real French person, but a real French person who works for a French synth company that also produced a software version of the Synclavia, said... In French, I say Synclavier. That's how I pronounce it in French. But if I were to say it in English, I would probably say Synclavier. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, we have an issue. In any case, today I present a conversation with that electronic computer manufacturer from the late 70s and the early 80s, which is just like a really important piece of equipment. The Synclavia was a FM synthesizer, first and foremost, and then it became capable of sampling. And the Synclavia became a phenomenally capable sampler. And I think it cannot be stressed how phenomenally capable capable of a sampler it was. And we'll put it like this. So I currently am recording this conversation into Ableton Livet, live of Ableton, itself a programme, potentially, according to some, inspired by the Synclavia because um, the gentleman, one of the gentlemen behind the company, that would be uh, Monolake, Robert Henk, was and is a Synclavia, Synclavia user himself. And it is told there are certain features in this that kind of vibe off of it a little bit. I'm recording this at 48 kilohertz, 24-bit. The Synclavia in the mid-80s recorded at 100 kilohertz. That is better than 96K. I'll say that again. It recorded in the mid-80s better than 96K. 16-bit in stereo. It was a phenomenally good-sounding sampler. Like, it was phenomenal what it was capable of. And if you talk to the people who own Synclaviers, because they still use them, and I, in the researching of this episode, spoke to my friend, Matthias Simovich. Matthias is in Halt. And if you've been buying synthesizers in the last few years, you perhaps noticed in Halt making videos about the sounds that are in their the synthesizers that they've been paid to produce and Sequential and Synclavia themselves for their new regen synthesizer have hired Mattia to do sound design. Mattia has a studio in LA called Infinite Power and the backbone of his studio, other than a big bloody Neve desk, is a Synclavia that he acquired. I phoned him up to say, hey, Mattia, I'm interviewing, you know, Cameron Jones, who was the co-founder of Synclavia back in the day. I want to pick your brains for 10 minutes just about, 
you know, why you love that device. And he had me on the phone for more than an hour, stood outside the supermarket. I was like, oh, thought I was just going to have this conversation as we just walked in. But I just, nope. Uh, I was, it was a full hour of him explaining how the Synclavier's usefulness, it's, and its usability was and is in many respects second to none. It was exquisitely designed. His words were, it it spoke music. It was a musical device. You could, you didn't have to think, which is a quote from Simon Franklin, who's a composer who had a Synclavier. And since, I don't know if he still uses it, but Simon did the soundtrack to Avatar and stuff. So he's a very like, successful composer. Simon said, I don't have to think when I use a Synclavier. And that's because the interface was so well designed and the software all just spoke music. And it was able, you were able to compose in just this fast and fluid way. And Matthias still uses it and loves it to this day, as do other composers. And so I think it's really interesting that today's conversation is with Cameron Jones, because Cameron is the co-founder, along with Sidney Alonso, uh, who passed away last year. Cameron is still going, and Cameron is very much still going, because in fact, there is a new Synclavier device. He acquired the rights to the company's name and, and intellectual property, the software that he co-created, what he co-created, you know, it was his architecture. And they have a new device called the Regen, which I have sat next to me, because I got to try one, they loaned me one to play with. And the Synclavia is just amazing. It's a sampler, it's an FM synth, and it can do just crackers things. Like, for example, you can blend synthesis and sampling. You can FM waveforms and you can resynthesize sound. You can take an actual recording and you can have it rebuild it in FM. And so it will speak and talk and like do kind of crazy synth things. And that was something that our friends in Kraftwerk did because Kraftwerk had a Synclavier. Apparently, according to Mattia, the mix is basically just a big Synclavier demo. Lots of stuff on Electric Cafe, you know, like music nonstop, like the music nonstop. That is Synclavier, apparently. So a ton of records. Obviously, many you will know about Grace Jones and Trevor Horn, Slave to the Rhythm. That is a Synclavier. It's a big, bloody Synclavier demo. Um, Duran Duran, The Reflex, uh, Apocalypse Now soundtrack, um, obviously Kraftwerk. And then the kind of big, big, big ones, Zappa, like Frank Zappa, like he spent the whole last 10 years of his life just composing on a Synclavier. Uh, so it was like a significant part of him. You know, speaking to Matia, Depeche Mode, um, Daniel Miller, a uh, friend of the podcast owned a Synclavier and there are a lot of their albums. You can just, they're just like Synclavier demos. So it's a hugely important machine. And while there are other samplers that were, you know, more affordable, and that's kind of why they were maybe better known, the Synclavier did it best and it still does it best in many respects, depending on who you ask. Um, because it was fantastically expensive. Mattia told me that his rig in 1984 would have cost half a million US dollars. But 
you could make a case that back in the 80s when you know music was a viable career and you might be making a lot of money from it, especially if you were a commercial composer, then it would be justifiable because you'd have to hire one. Uh, you, you didn't need anything else. It was the studio. Like it was everything. It was your synth. It was your tape machine. It just You could just do whole music on it. So anyway, I'm excited by it because I think it's a really... One of those devices that I don't think we talk a lot about, but is really significant in its in its impact. And so I was very, very excited to talk to Cameron, who is the co-architect of it. And Cameron is, he just lives and breathes this and he's still doing it. And Craig, who is new to the this story, is part of the new uh, Synclavia digital regen project. That is a new desktop synthesizer that has the same technology that aims to be the same kind of sound and same core, like, you know, fundamentals, the things it can do and sounding really banging. Craig is the hardware guy behind that. And so I think that's enough of my fervent, I've just had an espresso and I'm very excited about this device. Uh, thank you for bearing with me. And I'll let Cameron take it up and... We'll talk to you afterwards. Presenting another conversation with Synclavier, Synclavier, Synclavier Digital. Thanks. I uh, graduated from high school in 1971. Uh, during during high school, of course, I was very interested in music. I was playing guitar at the time, uh, playing bass at the time. I, I was also, I mean, I find math extremely easy. And let's say people struggle with calculus. You know, I do, it's just so easy. For, I'm embarrassed to say, uh, when I was a kid in summer camp at like age eight, uh, I read these books on basic electricity and basic electronics. Now, those were all in vacuum tubes. Uh, so I, I did find transistors a little baffling when they came out. Um, so I graduated from high school in 1971. And uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to go to college. But then, you know, all the sturm and the drang of those kind of decisions. And that was a difficult time in the, in the country politically and socially with all the upheaval over the Vietnam War. Uh, but I did decide to go uh, to college, Dartmouth College, in for the fall of 1971. At that time, two years earlier, uh, someone had donated enough money to Dartmouth to form the Bregman Electronic Music Studio, and they hired John Appleton to run it. And this is... Uh, this is the academic portion of electronic music, and it, it was an academ academic genre back then. And uh, so there was there was electronic music lab there at the music department. There was some collaboration between the engineering school and the music department about well, okay, well you know the future. There's a future of combining. Uh, engineering and technology and music. I mean, your musical instruments are no longer made out of uh, string and wire and horsehair. Uh, this modern technology, this this going to make a difference to that world going forward. And uh, my first year at Dartmouth, I, I studied a great deal of music, uh, which is something I hadn't been able to do a lot of in high school. They wanted to connect a computer up to make some music and then use it for music education purposes, like ear training or harmonic dictation or stuff like that. Uh, so they they hired me 
as a student programmer, that's a, a common gig in college today. The tech kids, they work in the computer lab and they're the help desk in the computer lab. Well, I had been exposed to the Dartmouth time-sharing system when I was in high school uh, in 1969 and 1970. Uh, this was in the era where your basic computer, which uh, it filled a giant room. These were room-sized, and by today's, uh, you know, it's a joke te technologically, Why? but that was the Dartmouth time-sharing system, and it was a GE635 computer. This was back in the 1960s when your your computer. You remember the old movies? It's like if you watch an episode of Outer Limits, there's always well, you see the the computer with the mag tapes going in the and the lights all blinking. Well, it's like that. It's it's room size equipment. So I had that background, uh, and and of course I'd taken my first year of music classes. I was extremely interested in music. I could care less about the technology because. It's not that I found it boring, but I I didn't find the technical end of things challenging at all, and, and I was lucky. Is it there was the job opening, and there was me with my background in both music and engineering. So if you don't, if you want to attribute that to fate, well, I I chose to be born in the year 1952, and uh, I I preferred to be born in New England. I was born in Boston, actually, and of course, I made that choice because I knew there was I was going to have a significant future in the in the role of electronic music. Uh, but uh, obviously, there's serendipity, there's luck, uh, there's good luck, and there's bad luck. And uh, so, so I was hired uh, for the summer of 1972, uh, and I was writing computer software. I think it was all in assembly language at that point. And uh, the 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 person I eventually founded New England Digital with, uh, his name was Sidney Alonzo. Uh, he was a research associate at the engineering school on the staff there. He was assigned to this project for a year. Uh, he made a little circuit that let the computer make tones. Uh, it was a little square wave generator that could be controlled by the computer. So uh, if I go in there and write the right kind of software... Well, I can I can program the the tone generator to to play a scale or to make different pitches pitches or it could make uh, make primitive chords. I think it was a four voice thing that caught of a lot of attention. Uh, and in fact, I won the Kemeny Prize in computing my first year there, which is very unusual for, for a sophomore. My second year there, very unusual for a sophomore, because there was a computer doing something. Well, a you could hear it. And oh yeah, there's rhythm, there's tone. It was actually a computer making music. Do you remember Bell Labs and Daisy Days? Do you remember? Uh, I don't know. You can find that somewhere. Uh, Bell Labs had a computer trying to create synthesized voice sounds. Uh, you know, in in the '60s somewhere. Well, there was a computer making music, and uh, it was it was all very exciting. So. Then Dartmouth put more money in it to make a larger system that four people could use at once. Uh, so I actually wrote, uh, I wrote all my own operating system and, uh, Sydney put together a 16 voice synthesizer for that. We started making circuit boards. We developed a computer, no, a music programming language where you could actually, this was under John Appleton's direction. You could actually use a computer. Again, this was all done using a model 33 teletypewriter, mechanical computer terminal. Uh, this was before the days of screens or anything, but you could type in, in a line-numbered file, uh, a description of the music you want. While well, you want some silence, you want this tone, you want that tone, 
oh, you want this tone for this long, that tone for that long. It caught people's attention because this was computer music becoming real. Um, and then when I graduated from, from Dartmouth, I, uh, Sydney and I decided to start the company, New England Digital, to sell the computer. Uh, we had developed our own 16-bit computer that was a lot smaller than the data general computer. I developed, uh, again, a whole another computer operating system for that and a, a computer language. Uh, and we were selling those uh, to the science labs at Dartmouth uh, where they wanted to involve computers in their scientific experiments. Let me uh, just interject sure. as well. That was the same year that Apple was founded. That you started yeah, I believe it was computers. March of 76 Trivia is, uh, is when, when Apple was founded, and that's when NED was founded. Was this an FM synth then? Yes. The, the very first synthesizer in 1972 and 1973, that was just square waves. Oh, square waves and triangle waves. The second system that we built at, at Dartmouth in the 1974 timeframe, that had an FM synthesizer engine. There was a digital circuitry that Sydney put together that solved the FM equation, and I, so I could program it to make the FM sounds. Uh, John Chowning uh, developed the FM stuff. I've forgotten when his patent was, but it was 70 or 71 is when he started that. He shared that information with with John, John Appleton, who was aware of it, and he, he suggested using FM synthesis. Sydney put it up. So yeah, we, we were a little bit surprised that he patented because he had told us all about it before he did the patent application. Uh, but the way it worked out is that we eventually licensed the rights to the patent from Yamaha, who had bought it from him. And and so at that point, we had formal access to the technology. Can I also just very quickly interject here? It's amazing to me that you were basically a student and you were selling computers Back, you know, music computers back to your university. <laughs> is that, and is that not remarkable? Uh, uh, well, I, you know, I don't know. It it all seemed so so easy at the time. Obviously, I was I was programming around the clock, writing software around the clock. But again, I find writing software very easy. It's it's the staying up and staying awake is 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 the and is the challenging part of it. Uh, so sampling was just not technically possible. We decided, uh, Sydney and I said, well, you know. We've developed this synthesizer. Let's try and make a product out of it. Uh, so in 1977, we came out with this Enclavier 1, uh, which was in a couple of wooden boxes. Uh, I made the wooden boxes on a table saw there in Norwich, Vermont. The market for Synclavier 1 were the, elec the electronic music studios in the various colleges. The these were academic institutions that had a budget uh, so we sold 13 Synclavier 1s in the 77, 78 time frame, 79. The floppy disks got faster. But mostly, again, this is serendipity. Denny Yeager was a very successful, they called it a jingle writer. He wrote music for radio and television commercials. Uh, and back then, if, if you wanted to do uh, the soundtrack for a 30-second Merrill Lynch or Sears Roebuck commercial, well, you had to write the notes out on a piece of paper. You would hire a pit orchestra, uh, you know, a couple of violins, some strings, big percussion, electric guitar. You know, you'd need 20 people in the room. You know, j just to make a 30-second soundtrack, even if it's, 
even if the sound is not like uh, you know the feature of the ad, the, it, it's a, it, it's a bed under the dialogue and the graphics. Which, are, but anyways, you have to have catchy music. He he heard about this in Claveria one and looked at it and, and he said, well, you know, wait a minute, we we can apply this technology uh, to to the commercial music industry. So he he contacted the company and uh, this was in beginning in 1979. Uh, and at that point, we began development of what became the Sinclair 2. New England Digital was able to raise some money uh, in 1979. The investors were hoping we were going to go global with our computer company. Well, I guess they, they wanted us to become what eventually Apple became. Um, we, we didn't. We, we chose a different path. Apple Apple did their thing, and and they ended up being the trillion dollar company. And NED, uh, I, I don't. Know, my own interest was in music, so uh, maybe I never really got excited about a, a computer product. But Synclavier two, you know, the technology was right. The, the the costs of the chips were coming down. The more memory was available. Uh, Denny walked through the door. That was serendipity. And uh, so we worked for a year on Sinclair II. Uh, when we raised money, we hired a business manager. His name was Brad Naples. Uh, he eventually became the head of the company. Uh, but he took uh, Sinclair II to the Audio Engineering Society convention in May of 1980. Uh, and it was an instant success. It, it, it just right away, people said, wait a minute, I can use this. In effect, it was the first digital audio workstation. We didn't call it that, uh, but it had a recorder in it. You, you'd hit the record button, and it would record what you would play on the keyboard uh, into into memory. And, and, and oh, with a little voodoo on my part, it was multi-timbral. So you could have 16 tracks, each playing with a different timbre. And uh, yeah, lo and behold, you could make you know you could make sounds out of it. And when the musicians got a hold of the FM machine and started designing the sounds, I'd get sounds coming back, uh, and I would just find jaw-dropping. Uh, one was one day uh, somebody sent in a floppy. It had a whistle on it, someone whistling. <whistles> Anyways, you played it and said, holy shit, it sounds like a whistle. <laughs> you know, and it's just like it has all the emotional contact content of a whistle. Uh, another one was an alarm clock. I do tick-tock, tick-tock, tick And I said, wait a minute. Another one was a car horn. These, these are sounds that are instantly recognizable, and they're very useful in films or advertising. And these are all made by the FM synthesizer. Uh, I, I never would have guessed. The, the whistle, in fact, Alex, is you can listen to this yeah, on the region. Uh, I don't think the alarm clock and the anvil sounds. I, we haven't probably put those on Regen. They're available on, online. I've posted all the original sounds that we had. So at this point, this thing couldn't sample, are you saying? It was Synclavier 2, it was FM only, uh, but it was like a digital audio workstation. You, you could record into it from the keyboard. There was no MIDI. You, you know, it was, it was no connectivity to other systems, but it, it had the keyboard. You could hit the record button. It had a click track, so there was a built-in metronome. You could lay down a bass track, a drum track, a guitar track, and start putting horns on top of it. Uh, you know, so uh, in no time at all, you could make your, your music for a jingle. Um, 
you would still sell it for $20,000, but it would only take you a couple hours in your room to make it. So, How much was that machine? How much would it have cost them? Those machines for an eight voice was like sixteen grand. Okay. Um, and and for a 32 voice, it was like 30 or 32 grand for the for the big one. I mean, if you could sell your, you know, one soundtrack for 20 grand, then that's uh, no, not- it, it, that's why it, and, and eventually, of course, later on with, with the later Sinclair, if you were in the commercial music recording business, uh, you either had one in your studio or you, you went out of business. I mean, it, you, you needed to partake of that technology to stay in business. So in 1980 and 1981, there were some very early, we called them Winchester discs. First one I had my hands on was a five megabyte Winchester disc. I believe it was made by a company called IMI. Five megabytes. And if you very carefully wrote the software, well, okay, that's, that's what I do, right? If you, if you really struggled with the software, you could get that disc to read and write data at a rate of 100,000 bytes per second. If you can read and write the disk at 100,000 bytes per second, well, you can record a single track of 50 kilohertz sampling digital audio onto that Winchester disk. So you mean you had to literally stream straight to the disk to to get it to record effectively? Absolutely. That is a very good way to say it. We had like a 2K word buffer in memory. We had the A to D converter, the missing piece of the equation was the storage part. So we got the IMI five megabyte Winchesters. Oh, and then they came out with a 10 megabyte. And oh, then they came out with a 20 megabyte. But I adapted my computer operating system to become hard disk based. You'd go to compile. You wouldn't hear the floppies go step, step, step. We go, oh, we're compiled. You know, 1982 or so. Uh, we came out with a monophonic sampling option for the Synclavier 2. The Synclavier 2 was an FM synthesizer. Well, you add the A to D converter, you add the IMI Winchesters, you put it in a bigger box. At this point, they were smaller, about the size of a small filing cabinet. And kind of the stroke of luck, maybe it was a stroke of genius, right? Uh, but the stroke of luck, I said, well, we will just integrate that recording and playback with our existing sequencer and with our FM synthesis engine. So right away, we had an audio workstation that would work with one sample at a time. Uh, And the thing is, you could apply all the timbre design elements like the pitch offset and the vibrato, all the technology that we had been working on for almost 10 years. Well, right away, you could apply that to the sample that you recorded. And of course, this gave us a leg. Other people were doing sampling there, like Fairlight was doing sampling, Emi was doing sampling. So right away, you could combine the sampling with FM in the same timbre. Uh, then company raised money a second time. It developed the Velocity keyboard, which is a much, much bigger 72-note uh, versus 61-note keyboard, 76 octaves. Seven so must be a 73-note. It, it was a gorgeous keyboard, by the way. It's the uh, profit. Profit 10 keyboard, uh, Yeah, I, I believe so. I believe it is. Yes. Yeah. We were buying that from Dave Smith's company, the action from Dave Smith's company. Uh, absolutely. And then in 1984, 1985, while well, the technology, again, uh, serendipity, whatever, the chip that came out, they were called 4K dynamic RAMs. And it's a little 16 or 18 pin dip, you know, 
you can hold it in your hand. And that had 4K bits, not bytes, it had 4K bits of memory on it. And so with a 16 by 16 inch card, you could put one megabyte of RAM on it. Uh, it was expensive. We were selling those for $10,000 per megabyte. Uh, but we developed, and people would 10, buy them. Yeah, 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 yeah. $10,000 a megabyte. Uh, first of all, the memory chips were expensive. Uh, there was a product out there called the Emulator. Mm -hmm. uh, was that made by Emu? I'm it was. Yeah. Okay. It did 12-bit sampling into RAM. It, not at 50 kilohertz. I forgot. It probably had a 40, 20 kilohertz sampling rate. Yeah. I don't know what it was. Far less. You could hear that it was not as good as CD, qual CD quality or whatever. Uh, a full fidelity recording. If you're going to capture every nuance of the sound, well, that's why most people today use 48 kilohertz in their recording studio. 48 kilohertz, 16-bit. Uh, if you record with that technology, all of a sudden... Well, okay, it doesn't need to sound any better than that. That sounds as good as the CD. You can get very good sound with 48 kilohertz. Uh, but the emulator, I mean, that wasn't a cheap, I don't know what it was. That would have been six or $8,000. Synclavier, from a business point of view, said, we're not going to come out with a product till it's at the top level uh, for the musicians. And, and that was kind of a biz business decision that we always made. Uh, it reflects my own value. I I didn't care so much that it was expensive. Uh, I obviously th there's merit to having an affordable product. Don't get me wrong, but uh, our mission was to take the latest, the newest, and the, therefore the most expensive technology that was developed and apply that at a very top level, uh, you know, to to the music industry. We developed. These are the big PSMT systems that you see that are the size of a refrigerator. Uh, we developed a polyphonic sampling system uh, that was in many ways architected after the FM synth. It was just, I, I went to the guys, the guys are struggling with it. How are we going to make this? And I said, listen, the FM synthesizer is 8-bit. Well, we're just going to make it 16 bits and use the design principles all over again. And they said, well, blah, 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 blah. But eventually they, they did. And so that let us bring it to market pretty quick. And and so it was a 32-voice, uh, 100 kilohertz, 16-bit, 32 voices. And, and it had these bank of RAM cards. And now, to put it into perspective, one megabyte of RAM, oh, I forgot. I thought it, it gave you like 15 minutes at 50 kilohertz or, you know, whatever it is. It was long enough so you could have a, you could have a couple minutes of samples in RAM. You are always trying to make one and two and three and four second samples. If you recorded the piano, you couldn't let it ring for 10 seconds. You'd be out of memory. You had to damp it after three or four seconds. So you couldn't play any really long notes. But gosh darn it, when you played it, uh, it sounded like a real piano. I mean, it really did. And of course, but then of course, you can add the vibrato, the tremolo, the, you know, out of tune. Uh, you know, the chorus, all those, all those, uh, sound design functions that we had developed for Synclavier. Well, okay. Well, I'll make them work on this voice. And when we designed the polysynthesizer, we made it have the same pitch resolution as the FM synthesizer. It was actually greater because we had 12 bits instead of eight or some goofy thing. But, um, so that was the polysynthesizer. 
And that system was expensive. We were selling a top-of-the-line product. We had a huge R&D staff. We had 10 and 15 programmers working on, on, on this. Oh, we had, all, we had to develop all our own screens. We had the audio event editor. We had music notation display. You know, you know there, was, there was a room full of people uh, working, working on the software. Again, it's, it's all what comes in Pro Tools. You buy Pro Tools now, it comes with 8,000 times as much software in it. But, but we were, we were at, at the leading edge. We were running on our own computer. Mm-hmm. We had to develop our whole operating system. We had to develop our own computer. We had our own programming language. We had to develop our own graphics environments. Now you download Juice or you download, was it Boost? Yeah, you know, for free, you get a library that does all these functions for you. Uh, you go to a web page and you can make any plot you want. You, you don't even have to sign up, but it was, it was very different back then. You had, you had to create everything by hand. So, uh, that was the 1985 and 1986 product. By 1988 and 1989, the Winchester discs got fast enough so you could start recording four tracks of audio and playing back four tracks of audio from a disc at the same time. So we came out with a direct to disc system, is what we called it. Again, it integrated with the Synclavier. So with a Synclavier sequence. So when you press start on the button panel, the discs would start playing back. But we had a, uh, it was a 16 track hard disk recorder. You could record to the four hard disks at the same time. That was complicated software. So it, it, maybe that's when I developed my stuttering problem. That was, that was tricky software. That was the first, the marketing types called it the tapeless studio. Uh, you could play in a synthesized track using FM, a synthesized track using the poly s- system, uh, and you rec- record live tracks of audio up to 16. It was all, it was just like Pro Tools. You have everything in the same screen and you can go in there and do your mixing from the screen and play back and mix down to tape and, and, and there's the hit record going out the door. So, uh, that that is how the technology developed and when the company folded in 93 we were working on incorporating more digital signal processing cuz that was coming of age uh, where the dsp chips the motorola 56k yeah. uh could actually do digital filtering online uh but of course that's when the personal computer had been developed in 88 89 so the whole industry was switching to people working at home and making uh, making music in in very small studios. So the great big industrial scale recording companies. When was the last time anyone used a twenty four track tape recorder except to impress their friends? That whole industry came came to an end. The tape recorders were discontinued. The big synclaviers became obsolete. Um, and uh, well. Depends. If you ask the owners, they would say they're not obsolete even now. They are, um, because because the way of working is 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 still very special. In two thousand, a friend of mine, we came up with an option for Synclavier that connected it up to the internet, so you could use a networked file server instead of the built-in hard drives. Uh, two thousand to two thousand four. Then from two thousand four to two thousand fourteen. Uh, I didn't do any of it. There was just no technology that came out that was readily applicable. Obviously, that's when Cubase and Pro Tools, everyone was doing music on a CD. And there was nothing really 
Uh, there was no greater way to incorporate Synclavier into, uh, you know, anyways, in, in 2016, I was working with uh, another friend of mine in Texas, and we came up with a new version called Synclavier 3, and we improved the Mac app. Uh, and then I started working on a plugin version for Arturia, uh, which has been very successful. It has all the original sounds. And then in 20, uh, 2018 or so, I met my neighbor, Craig Phillips. Uh, he lives right across the river. And uh, we were at a tech group meeting, and, and I was bitching and moaning, geez, I've got all this work to do. Oh, I, I, I needed some software help. So it turns out he did software. And so he did a little software project for me. And at one point he said, oh, yeah, I also do computer hardware. <laughs> and my eyes lit up. Oh, hardware. I don't know. Some, some people have nine to five jobs and are very happy and are very predictable with them. Uh, I've always, uh, if, if I get latched on to an idea, like my eyes grow wild, oh, yes, we can do this. Um, so, again, because of the new technology that was coming out, uh, these are the compute modules, industrial kind of compute modules. They're, they're in use in the robotics. All, you know, they're all over the place now. These little tiny compute module about this that comes with a gigabyte RAM on it or two gigabytes. Right? It's got four core processors. I said, hmm, we hook that up to a button panel and I port my software. You know, we can have a portable modern product uh, that incorporates all the sound design capabilities. Because when the company folded, uh, long story short, I ended up buying the intellectual property and the trademark from the bank when the, the company folded. So then we we got this four processor, four core ARM thing, and I did some tests on it. I said, Jesus Christ, it's fast. <laughs> okay, dare me. Uh, and so at that point, we started, oh, we said, oh, regen, yeah, that'll take a year. Uh, so three years later, we finally uh, we finally came out with, with regen. And, and that that in a nutshell is the is I think, the, I think is what the you do when you, when you predict like how, how long something's going to take, you, you forget about the contingencies and the mistakes and the redos and stuff. It, you know, it might take a year, but it's, oh, we hit a brick wall and this takes time, this takes time. And it was, yeah, two and a half years, I think, before yeah, it, we- it, it, You have to multiply by pi, you know, like a straight <laughs> yeah, line going around the circle, right? So if, yeah. if, if you think it's going to take a year, well, okay, well, so it took three years. Hey, Alex, so anyways, that's- that's uh, the sleigh ride. That was question uh, number one. Alex. Question number one. So I okay. Hope you've got more <laughs> questions. Yeah. There's a. I suppose there's a thing we were talking about before about the cost of these things, and it's you know everyone talks. I was reading historic articles, and people were talking about it at the time, and I'm sure that you know uh, Cameron, you had it to your face. People going, "Why? Well, you know, so much money." And I think there's this Cameron. You were saying how you were not really interested in making a kind of compromised product. It was an intention to make something that was actually pretty much as good as it could be made, you know, given that you were inventing it. And I think there's, I spoke before this conversation, I spoke to Matthias Simovich Inhalt, who has done sound design on the regen and is a Synclavier owner. And um, I like, I called Matthias and was just like, oh, I, you know, I'm interviewing the guys from uh, Synclavier and, be good just to get sort of five minutes of your thoughts. And I was speaking to him for over an hour of him just talking about 
you know, his sheer enthusiasm. And one of the things, there were many things that he was saying about it, but one of the things he was talking about was the quality of the product. And he was saying how with, you know, his machine says they just don't make them like this anymore. Like it's, it's discreet, you know, the, the choices, the components, he said, were like effectively like military spec. It would be interesting to hear both of your reflections on sort of quality. And, and actually one of the things that I just thought was interesting, he was like, I'd, he says, I wish we lived in a world where that level of quality of music technology was still present because there's an argument that there's, you know, we, as a general rule, technology has to be made more cheaply. It, we, we're talking about Craig, it can be made more cheaply. But I suppose there's, I suppose it's just to get your thoughts on that is, 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 should we, is it not okay for us to have some high end things still, you know, like the Synclavia was? Of course, of course it is. If you, there's people that would buy a Fender Telecaster or Stratocaster and there's people that will buy a copy. And uh, who are we to say, you know, that the copies are very good now, but for people that play guitar every day and pick up their guitar, they would spend, I, I don't know, $3,000 instead of $300 or pounds or whatever, right? Um, that's the case in every industry. Um, so again, the regen does sit at the higher end of the desktop thing, and we could apologize for that, or we could tell you why. All the components in there, again, are high spec and it all adds up and all adds up. Um, or we could just say, well, people are buying it and we, we're, not, we're not interested I think the assumption where people sort of criticise the cost, they say things like, uh, "Oh, well, if this was uh, half the price, I'd, I'd buy three of them," sort of thing, you know, or you'd or you'd sell more of them. It's like, well, we're not that kind of company that needs to sell thousands and thousands or wants to, but we want to offer something different and unique. We exist to offer something different and unique, and we obviously try to get it as affordable as we can because we want the most people using it. But we're not, yeah, we're not going to be able to throw out, uh, you know, a thousand dollar. Uh, product, um, but some some so, so there is a plugin and there is an app. But yeah, I mean that's part of our concession, I guess. Is we want everybody to be involved with this, so you can buy the app for thirty dollars, or you can buy the plugin for like a hundred. You know, and we we might focus on a less expensive, a lower a lower price point at some point. Uh, but but actually, there's still a long list of of more 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 expensive technologies that, that we'd like to put in there. Uh, maybe we'll partner with the right company and, or I, I'm not sure where, where it'll go. Uh, Craig and I have to stay in business. So that's the other thing I think is we are a small company that weirdly, I think the cheaper you try to place a product, the bigger you become because you become more of a, a procurement company. So me and Cameron were trying to, during the COVID crisis and the chip shortage, we were trying to buy up parts and buy up parts and, oh my God, doing this ourselves. And because things that we were using in our prototypes was quickly coming off the shelves or becoming expensive. So we did that and invested a substantial amount of money that we probably would have invest, wouldn't have wanted to invest so early. Well, not to name names, but you know who the bigger synth manufacturers are. They've got uh, umbrella companies and smaller companies and they all use all these chips and they have big teams of people uh, and certainly with electronic components, the more you buy, it's charged, there's a hundred price, there's a thousand price. And if you can use them across products and then warehouse them in a humidity-free environment and so on and so forth, you then pretty become uh, a production company um, or and a procurement company. And then maybe 40% of what you do is marketing. We, unfor- we, we fortunately don't have to do as much marketing. 
and and then there's you know a team of however many people a bit like me and Cameron working doing the the actual design is the tip of the iceberg for these companies so I have no aspirations to grow into a big company that sells to th- thousands of people and th- you know the CEO, CEO comes in and says you've got to hit this price so now make your product the uh, epiphany for me when we were developing this product is we were looking at some of the other digital synths uh, that are on the market, like the Hydra synth and the Wardorf stuff, uh, the Kira and stuff like that, and the Iridium particularly, actually. I would say, well, well if we're going to do a desktop version of uh, uh, of the Synclavier, we uh, should do this, should do this, should do this. And we were sort of chasing the spec game for a while. And then the epiphany came when, no, why don't we just do what we do really well and do it as really well as we can. So get the sound quality good, get the noise floor low, get the dynamic range high. We've, we've all, we already know we've got sounds that people like. We'll add more. And and then that's what we did. And it clicked It clicked for me then was that was the product, that was the place you're in. And you kind of drown. I think Cameron was probably already there and always has been in this. I'm going to do the best I can. Since then, we've added functions too. Anyway, we've kind of added the filter and the reverb and a few of those bells and whistles that the sort of Chinese synths have all got as many bells and whistles as you can shake a stick at. We've actually ended up adding them and we're still adding some anyway. So we've got to a place where I'm really proud of what we've done. You know, something exists because you make it because of who you are and it's kind of work, you work your way back. And I think that's come out eventually, if that makes any sense at all. No, it does. Will you continue to develop for it? Is it? Is it? Because I think there was this thing that you talked about, Cameron. We sort of, in a, you know, going through the history, you, you kind of glossed over it. But it's the the key thing was obviously you bought the rights back in 1998, but you continued to develop for Synclavier's since. And Matthias Synclavier works with his modern Mac. He doesn't need a Macintosh too. Exactly. Uh, right. And I think it's, it would be interesting to, because this is the other point where we talk about something that's potentially very expensive. I mean, what, genuinely, what other technology product from the early to mid 80s is still functioning in a modern context in right. quite this way? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it is It is pretty unusual. And uh uh, like many of, uh, I mean, really most of the products of the era, like the emulator and the typical key- keyboard synthesizers that you would get, were not particularly expandable. You couldn't really add to them. They didn't have open software. Uh, so Synclavier was a little bit uh, in its own category uh, because of that. Uh, it It is kind of amazing that those big systems are still in use. I wrote a lot of software in Synclavier three. I, I you know, um, the, those it's people, a kernel uh, extension and a MIDI drive. It's just in, it's just insane that I did those, that. Those Alex, people you know. are in touch with Cameron uh, before we started Regen. Once a week, he'd get an email saying, "I'll oh, remember the good old days, and I still use my Synclavier for certain things. I can't find anything else to do. And wouldn't it be good if you did this? Wouldn't it be good if you did that?" And kind of goes around Cameron's brain, and then he kind of assists where he can. And then the other questions you get are, well, where can you buy? Where can you keep? Where can we get parts? And that's, you know, <laughs> that's uh, the, the usual kind of eBay's and reverb. And- I mean, Matia was like, you can kind of, uh, these are pretty serviceable devices. You know, there's a few Synclavier people, right? In yeah. certain places who are like your, your go to people. But he's like, well, and there, weren't, there were some proprietary chips, he said, but not, 
not as many as you might find in perhaps a Yamaha or, you know, Roland IR3109 proprietary chips and so forth. People make clones of these now, but I suppose it was very, by the very nature of the fact that you were making quite a high-end discrete product, that also made it repairable. And I don't know if that was part of the design, you had no other way of making it. Yeah, we, and we never were making volumes. They were called ASICs application specific integration circuits a, a more more consumer level synthesizer that they make in thousands well they spend the money to, to develop custom silicon and there's a, a dedicated chip in there that does work uh, I've never been involved with with a product that has that much volume that can justify that kind of cost so my, my mission for, for regen was was to capture the way of working in all the sounds make them in a modern product. And I think we've done that. It's, it's, uh, everyone loves the sound of regen and that, that, that makes me feel it was worth it. We get emails all the time. Uh, I love the sound. And, and I don't know how often that happens with customers that they feel not only do they like it, but they like it enough to email, email the manufacturer and say, I really love this. But we, it's embarrassing the amount of emails we get. Um, it really is. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that because I'm proud of it. And we did spend three hard years working on it, but uh, other people can be the judge of it. To talk about that, that synclivious sound that was so popular, people like it or hate it like anything else. But for those people that love it, like Matter here would be one. They absolutely love it. There's certain things in Regen that either emulates or are exactly the same because it's obviously digital as that machine. So it's going to make a sawtooth different to anything else makes a sawtooth, but it's going to be authentic to the original. And that's to do with the slight detuning of the frequencies. It's to do with the type of interpolation that's being used and four or five technical kind of achievements that Cameron's been able to put in the software that emulate the real hardware and those variable rate DACs and stuff like that. So when Mattia A and B's it, he goes, this is really close. This is, this is dead close. That was something we had to do. It wasn't something whether we wanted to do it or not, because we had to sell it at least to our existing customers. Because I understand this, because of the design, how it pitches down and pitches up, you know, samples, there's a tone, or certainly pitches down, there's going to be a real certain vibe, we would say, I suppose. And yeah. Well, I don't lots, know what that is. Lots of words. It's decimation is what it really is. It's uh, skipping some samples so you get the stepped nature. So um, the overtones come out and we hear them and they're pleasant, certainly in the lower you know, frequencies. When you play in the higher frequencies, we don't hear those overtones. And that's to do with the particular way the sample's decimated in lots of those old synthesizers. Now, the Synclavier, uh, the Synclavier didn't have any uh, reconstruction filters on the DAX. I guess it's getting technical now, but um, there was enough capacitance, you know, resistance, inductance, whatever in the in the lines that it wasn't thought that it was necessary. And as soon as they put any kind of filtering on it, people said, it doesn't sound as good. So there was never any reconstruction filters. Well, most of, even I think the Fairlight had analog reconstruction filters, I think. I believe it, there. yeah, it did. So it was always a unique sound, which again, some people might find that it created them, but other people that revel in all of these overtones, these harmonic overtones and stuff would, would love. To be clear, you're talking about having like a low pass filter on the output of the sample so that it effectively truncates the kind of fizzy grit that you would get. With. Yeah, correct. When you kept that in, were you making a decision? I, you know, actually like this is talking maybe the original thing. Well, I, actually, uh, this actually happened. We, we, uh, when Sinclair 2 came, came out, 
uh, some people say, wait a minute, it's just too bright. So we, we put some analog filters on the output. And that's when we started getting complaints about the sound. So we made them so you could switch it on and off. Uh, but, but also, uh, again, this is an, an accident of fate. Uh, the, the kind of digital oscillator that you were able to develop, or the one that Sydney and I chose to develop in, uh, in 1974, it only makes a certain set of frequencies. You can't, it's not infinitely adjustable. There are steps in the frequency that it makes. And the sampling that it, uh, that it creates actually dithers in the time domain, which is, uh, dithering is a technique for an A to D converter to kind of smooth out the noise floor so you don't hear it as much. Well, there's a time domain dithering that is implemented as part of the Synclavier oscillator because actually the samples don't come out right on time and they come out dithered around a 180 second time interval. That was an artifact of, of the technology that was available us for, uh, to us for the original oscillator. Well, it turns out the impact that that has on the sound is it makes it very good. It gives it a kind of a warm feeling. It, it, it gives it a spatial uh, presence that makes it sound better than, than the original, and uh, in a way, in a way, that's a defect. It, you know, it's it, it's it's less than a scientific recording. Uh, but that's particularly what I went out of my way to capture in the Regen software, um, and uh, be, because that was important to me. You know, from it's really so simple. If if two guys are going to start a, a a business and come out with a product. Uh, there has to be a reason that someone would buy that product instead of all the other 1,500 other products that are out there. You know, Craig was saying, well, gee, we've got to do everything. It's just got to be better than anything out there, and it has to have all, all the features out there. And, and I said, well, okay, it's first of all, it's, it's never going to happen. But I, it, it's like, let's call it personality. If if you follow a particular actor or somebody where, where a character presents a, a, a real personality with, which is hard to define, but you know, behaviors, expressions, the way they look, the way they walk, the way they talk, all the subtle things. And Synclavier ha has numerous aspects of like that. First of all, the sound design methodology with the buttons and the knob, uh, or the swiper in the case of Regen. Uh, it, it's a particular way of sound design. The way, the way the harmonics are used, the way the dithering is used. We want it to be true to Synclavier and okay, it, do, it does, it may not do everything that every, everyone else does out there, but, but what it does, it does for a reason. It, it has the real Synclavier personality. It's like, it's like working with, with one of the original machines. Now it's been modernized. We have just a gorgeous subtractive synthesis engine in Regen. There was, there was nothing like that in the original hardware. Uh, but again, like with the sampling, I took the sampling technology morphed it into the timbre design process for the FM synthesizer. The result was seamless. You could combine sampling and FM synthesizer in the same timbre. Well, for Regen, I did the same with subtractive synthesis. And we have a just a terrific filter that I put a lot of time into uh, with Attack and Decay. And uh, the interpolation that I used on the synthwave patterns well, it's a version of the one that I used for the sampling. So again, it has the time domain dithering around the, the sample points. And I said, you know what? That sounds great. I like it. 
Yeah, a term that Cameron uses quite a lot is musical, isn't it? It's like, well, does it sound musical or not? So you take a sample in and then play it back. What are you doing? You're just recording us. Anything can do that now, but is, is there a musical nature to it? And so with the experiments and stuff like that, with our ears and other people like Matea, we ask that question. Just to clarify on the subtractive stuff, a lot of people would, would jump to the fact, oh, it's an analog generator and it's white noise and stuff like that. It's a continuous waveform. So every sample is generated at whatever frequency it's generated in, be it a sawtooth or white noise, or I think we did a square wave, didn't we? So that's slightly different to the additive waves we do. So the generator is a bit different in terms of its continuous nature. And then you can apply filters in the traditional subtractive style. So that's what we've done. And that's the new kind of feather in the cap of Synclivia for, for this product which again is musical and again sort of fits in really well. You can mix a bit of this and mix a bit of that in the partial timbre method and, and generate something that's better than the whole. I have to ask about the sort of, you know, you have a lot of famous users um, historically and obviously, uh, you know, still people using it now. And I mean, it would be interesting, particularly Cameron, to pick your brain about, were you, did you feel calls from people and were you, were you having conversations with artists and folks that we would know? Because I'm curious about just the front line of being being a representative for that kind of company and making that kind of product at that kind of time for those kind of people you know who were the you know what were the conversations that you had what were the reactions it's kind of funny uh especially when NED was a small company you know I'd answer the phone Uh, I got a call it was a very famous guitarist called John McLaughlin and I said, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm having trouble using the guitar option. So I guided him through it, and it made me realize that, okay, well, gee, in the software, I can I can make the buttons work a little bit differently, so it's more more obvious. There there were people like that with, that we had lots of interactions with over the years, really to, to fine-tune the way the the product operates. Uh, obviously, Denny so, Yeager was the, was the first t- one that t- I tell spent the a Paul, lot of time Tell with. the Paul McCartney story. Tell the... <laughs> <laughs> so start of every game. Yeah, th- this is what he told. Tell me if this is true or not. But didn't you say Paul McCartney got hold of somebody there and wa- wanted uh, two two free ones? <laughs> and didn't you say no? Paul, not just one. I don't care if he's a Beatle. He's going to have to buy it. <laughs> yeah, he's a Beatle. He can afford it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and, he said, yeah. "I'm in the Beatles. I can put it on stage." And, and it was like, "Well, everybody's doing that. George Lucas is doing that." The big names of the year are like. Sting and Michael Jackson and, and and the Jackson family, his sister, and you know they they all had great big great big machines. They they certainly did, and and, and they had a lot of wonderful input over the years on yeah. on, on the way it, it should operate. Yeah. But but that was mostly the the sound the the method of sound design. Well, obviously that that was largely Denny Yeager's input, and, and really I just took his input, and then. Uh, broadened it and, of course, applied it to the new technology. Like when Denny and I, when we designed that button panel, the Synclavier 2 button panel, and what features were going to be on it, where the button should be, what they should do, uh, that was FM only. That's Mm -hmm. all we had to work with. But when the sampling came along, uh, and now Regents come along, it's like, wait a minute, all those buttons make sense. It's a way of working that has a consistency to it. Uh, it, it just made it very easy. Okay, well, that's the product. That's that's the sound design model we're going to use in Regen. Alex, don't worry. I've tried to ask that question many times. I've tried to ask about all of these, you know, because tell me about Kraftwerk. When I was kind of custom, uh, I think half the time he's too busy, and half the time he's not not interested. 
Did Kraftwerk have a... Yeah, they had a system. I heard a rumour they had a custom one, or like custom colour, was that right? I think I think so. They had a white one or something, didn't they? Yeah, and I, 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 uh, once the company got larger, I, I didn't get to work with, with very many customers. Uh, I do remember I did a custom software project for Stevie Wonder to make the machine more helpful to him with his with visual impairment. Uh, so I, I, I had, I, I had some wonderful times uh, with that. Later on in the '80s, our customers were big recording studios. For every celebrity installation, there was Universal Recording or Lionsgate or Skywalker Sound or mm. um, you know where they had rows of machines to, to facilitate making audio, mostly for films, is where is where the big installations were. I read an article that was like a contemporaneous, at least it was like 1989. They were talked about uh, NED had like a sort of uh, demo for a journalist where they'd like, they had like a scene from Aliens, like the movie Aliens, and they recreated the soundtrack from scratch on a Synclavier with, with like custom sounds to show how you could kind of just perform, perform a soundtrack in real time. I haven't heard that one before, but maybe quite lightly. Well, and and of course, beginning in in soundtracks of the that era, sometimes we had access to the raw materials that the actual soundtrack was was made yeah. with. We, we developed really the very first digital audio workstation. Of will we called it a sequencer? Uh, it became a memory recorder at some point in in the Velocity keyboard days. the The way that sequencer works is you boop boop. You call up a sound, you hit record, and you start playing. Pick up another sound, hit record, and start. You don't, you don't need to engineer. <laughs> you know, you yeah. don't, you don't need to fuss. Oh, pick the track. It'll pick the track for you. This, oh, I want that sound. You start playing. So there was a spontaneity that the users of the instruments could, could take advantage of. And mm. now in a commercial production situation where you're making a film score. Oh, no, you handed a click track. It's got to be at this tempo. The music hits have got to line up with the film. Everything's much more controlled. But in terms of making making music uh, creatively for, for an album, it goes, I, I, there's no albums anymore. Everything is streamed. So I don't know what it is. It, it's all very different now. I read a Simon Franklin quote that he said the words, I don't think when I use it. Well, I, I, that That is... That is, yeah. that it's, is it's left that side is exactly brain right. and right side brain, and the left side is the technical stuff, which it does really well if you want to dive deep into designing sound. But then when you start to compose, you don't want that getting in the way. Uh, and so, again, when we design region, it's like, is it serving left side brain and right side brain? Mm. And there are some foibles with it that, you know, there's obviously a learning curve and stuff, but once you get conversant on it, absolutely, you, it's second, second, it, it should be it's second self, it's, once you learn it, I, I know, I know there's a learning curve, but it is just so fast. And, and that's, that, that's exactly right. That's, that's well, well stated. Work, work flows into it. When you are using a computer workstation and a mouse and a screen, Oh boy, that's all left brain. You can't, you know, you you click on the wrong spot, you hit the del delete button. <laughs> you close. Oh damn! You turn. You close the project without saving it. When, when you're trying to really nurture the 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 human creativity that's within you, you want to be able to close your eyes and just wham, 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 all at your fingertips, and 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 so you can just 
so quickly capture the the, the emotion of, of the moment in, into the piece, and that that's kind of you, you don't really realize that that's one of the uh, real strong points of Sinclair. Is uh, there it is? You can just yeah. you know you you, you can. You can kind of tune out the rest of the world, hit you know, and 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 get all those sounds out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's this is absolutely. Well, speaking to Matia, he's basically like it's fast. Even now, he says it's com- his words. It's competitive. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm as fast and capable using a Synclavia as I am with Pro Tools or some other system, and it's sound quality. Even despite the fact that it's as old as me, it is is still, it sounds as good as anything else, you know, in the sense that it's, yes, it's a sampler, but it has a 16-bit 50 kilohertz up to 100 kilohertz. I yeah, mean, that's, that sounds good. That's why we chose the 50 kilohertz, which is a little bit unusual on the output, but I think it does sound different. I think it's, of course, I wanted to recreate the original sound, but... Um, those those DACs are multiplied too, so the architecture is, yes, there's 16-bit DACs on the voice cards, but then there's a multiply with another DAC for the volume, so you've got even more range... And back then they were smart enough to to do that. Other people were just compositing the DACs. Well, now, of course, you can get 24-bit. You can even get 32-bit DACs. So you can put your volume control and everything in there. But um, so Do you mean that like the volume control, basically, you don't lose resolution yeah. as you that, that was, turn down the volume? That was another feature that, that made Synclavier sound so good in the day. In fact, this is one of our patents. We had two patents issued at the time. We actually used 3D-to-A converters. This was in the, well, and in the poly bin. Okay, we modeled it after the polysynthesizer. We had one DAC, like in the poly bin, there was a 16-bit digital day converter to actually make the waveform. We had a 12-bit DA converter, uh, four for every voice that made the envelope, and we had a third one that actually created the overall volume. So this is technically one of the reasons why Synclavier sounded so darn good at the time is that it had a dynamic range it's like 32 or 36 bits when, when you, it's like way beyond a CD player, way beyond 24 bit audio, because even as you play, when you play the sample back softly, you still have 16 bits of resolution on the waveform, even though it's volume is, is way down. So it's can, obviously a reason people are holding on to their machines and not wanting, because they do take a lot of power. They take up a lot of room. Uh, things do go wrong on them, of course, and you know they're, they're a hassle. But the reason people are keeping hold of them, are those reasons, because uh, not, not that yeah, we aren't so trying good. to get everyone to upgrade to <laughs> the region. Uh, we should just get one as well, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, we're working on ways to make Regen work more closely with the original machines. Uh, but but obviously we, we we want to sell Regens around the world as as we are. We think it's a uh, it's a great method of of synthesis that 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 is is time tested and will be there for the long haul i want to ask you about well a couple of things but um one of which was resynthesis the capability for the the machine to basically reinterpret a real sound quote unquote as synthesis i mean that's something that the synclavier could do right and could you just for those who don't understand that technology or know what it is in a nutshell how did it work, and how did you invent it? I'll tell you exactly, Alex. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, this was in the period of time before sampling. So this was uh, 1981. People people were starting to, to do, okay, we want to do sampling playback. I said, well, you can't do it. 
So, so I thought about it a little bit and I said, well, okay, if we can't do sampling playback, we have this FM synthesizer uses a wavetable and we can load different wavetables to it on the fly. The software was not easy. I will tell you that. So you can use this wavetable for 10 milliseconds. Oh, then use this wavetable. And then, you, so you could actually segue, change the wavetables over time is what it was. So I wrote software that took a, sa a sample in. Uh, it analyzed it to figure out where the harmonics, what the harmonics are at, at different points. Now, those were only 8-bit wavetables. That's all the FM synthesizer had was 8-bit wavetables. It was very complicated math using Lagrange polynomials, and, which I didn't know much about in those areas. It's gotten a lot easier. Now I can go to Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, oh, yeah, that's a spline. That's what I'm doing. Uh, so I can get all the algebra behind it. But I, I had to code all this on our little tiny 16-bit processor with no floating point. So the resynthesis, it was kind of a hybrid between synthesis and sampling. This was kind of funny. I was working on the filter design for Regen, and Kevin said, uh, be sure you can get it to resonate, almost to the point so of feeding back where... And I said, I'm really tired. He said, I'm really tired of these synthesizers. You turn all the controls up and it still sounds boring. You you want to be able to break it. You want to be able to turn up the control. You know, it's like, do you remember the fuzz tone, right? Like distortion. One of my quotes early on was, one man's distortion is another man's uh, hit record. And of course, that's very sexist. Yeah, I need I need to rephrase it in the, in the modern Persons. terminology. <laughs> but, yes. but you're absolutely right. In other words, what was the fuzz tone? Well, it was just an overloaded vacuum tube amplifier. Wait a minute, it's a square wave. Yeah, acid guitar. Look what it became. So, but uh, wasn't resynthesis out of a necessity as much as a as a trying to get initially? What it was just trying to do sampling, save memory, get out there without before we had the sampling product. But of course, once you do it and people experiment with it. Well, they start playing the wavetables backwards. They start changing the phase so it like it's, it sounds like a snake, or you know, it's just like once you get in there and can start and mm. can start messing with it, especially if you're allowed to mess it, mess with it to the point where it breaks, and all of a sudden it goes crazy and it feeds back, or you, know, you had a pitch envelope with four octaves and it's it doesn't sound like a four octave pitch shift. It sounds like. I don't know. It sounds like the rocket exploded. I don't know. It's just the, the sounds you come up with are very unexpected. Uh, and really, that's where creativity from a musical point of view is. Uh, you want to come up with a music track that, that sounds different. So, oh, it catches people's ear. Uh, it's got some new sounds into it. Uh, if you're doing a film, obviously, you're searching for a very wide palette of emotions you can incorporate into music to, to augment uh, the drama. That is, that's where resynthesis came in. And it's not the easiest portion of regen to use. We had a couple ideas. We want to hook it up to the knob so you can work uh, on the harmonics with the uh, external control surface. I don't know why I didn't think of that. I guess I was just out of time. Uh, the original resynthesis algorithms are in there. Obviously, uh, nowadays, the accuracy with which you can do those computations, uh, it's just, it's, well, from my point of view, it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting technique. It's, it's not for the faint of heart. We had an email a few weeks ago. Somebody was put the FM amount up to 250% and then did something else and the whole system went dead or something crazy. <laughs> and the first thought is, well, why, why does he need that much FM on, on something? And it's like, well, because he could. And it, because, so that's what, that's what we have to do. It's like 
provide those extremes, but also provide like there's a fine mode. If you if you press down the down arrow, you can really f- fine tune certain things. Uh, but uh, you can also go to the extremes, and I think that's really useful. Uh, it's something you'd never expect, like an FM ratio of nine. Oh, is that what it was? Is FM ratio? Was it, it was the FM ratio, right? Who would have thought that an FM ratio of like scientifically FM ratios are between 0.5 and two? Oh, fine. That's, that's what you could do on the DX7. Everyone's happy with that. Well, when you turn the FM ratio up to nine, you say, well, gee, what the heck does that do? Well, you know what? <laughs> it sounds great. All of a sudden you have, uh, uh, a major ninth kind of built in, in, into the sound itself in, in a way that, you know, and it's just like, okay, that, you know, that sounds good. I, you know, what makes a good sound? You know, it's like a violin. Okay, you have a student violin, and it's like, oh, my God. When you learn to tame those sounds and apply them creatively, I said, gee, you know, that that catches your attention. That That's a good sound. What does that mean? Well, Sinclair is filled, filled with hidden gems, if you will, in, in that department. I think you're touching on an interesting sort of point here, which is the fact that as an instrument designer, it's presumably, well, there's, at times, I would have said, or from speaking to people through this podcast especially, and speaking to people who design software and hardware instruments, I hear that one of the hardest things is designing the range of controls so that they are musical. All of the things in combination lead to good sounds. But it sounds like what you're saying is that there's also a kind of a danger there that you as a designer, can't predict what some what your what your own very creation is potentially capable of, and so there's a danger that you, you know, you thinking like the the musician, and and you should just leave some of those gloves, you know, let those gloves be taken off if that's what they want. And it sounds, it sounds like that's what you're saying. Although it also sounds like I can imagine it's a very hard thing to do because what I understand from talking to Mattia about the you know the Sinclavia is just. How, I mean, I've got, what was his exact words? He was just like, um, uh, he said, these guys spoke music and it makes a difference. What I'm getting at is this idea that, you know, how do you design an instrument where you, you make it easy for people, but also put all those options in? And then I suppose it's a feel thing, maybe. I, I, and I, again, I'm, I'm lucky to, to have uh, the background that I did. Uh, of course, in 1972, I was working with John Appleton. I, I, I was obviously really really shocked as I as I tried to understand how how he was thinking about things and I said you know why would you want to do that and I just learned early on that the people using this machine uh, are each going to bring their own expertise and their own way of looking at music and creativity uh, and, and and first of all they're going to be experts they are going to be the world experts at designing sounds at making emotional music uh, making music with drama in it, making music that makes you fall in love or f- feel like love or violence or uh, you know, stress. or th- These people are going to be searching for to apply their creativity. Uh, and so I, working with John, I got, uh, I got, I got a, a lot of exposure to that. Working with Denny Yeager, I, I, I kept trying to say, well, Denny, what, why do you want to look, why, why would you want to do this? Why Why should I take the time to program that feature the way you wanted to? And he'd kind of give me this look, and he'd say, do you want this thing to sound good or not? And by good, 
by good. He meant not scientific. Oh, it's a, like a tape recorder, the tape recorder companies. Oh, you, you got to put in a sine wave in, you get a sine wave out. There cannot be any distortion. If the signal level differs, uh, reject. It's not, it's not a recorder. But uh, when you're trying to come up with a synthesizer that creates new sounds, good is how interesting are the sounds that you come up with? Are they sounds that you haven't heard before? Are they sounds that, that blend uh, a whole bunch of different musical styles from a, a sharp rhythmic pack? Oh, it's hip hop over here. It's classical music over there. It's country music over there. Um, there's all these styles of sounds that you want to draw upon. And uh, there's a little bit more to engineering. Uh, it, it's, it's not just getting the buttons right and getting the sine waves right and the bit spites. Uh, it's science and art. Yes, yeah. as simple as that. There's there's an art element to it. There's a there's a creativity element. But it that, sounds that, like quite a lot of that was conscious as well as subconscious. The the limits you put in or the things you would make it do, it was, you kind of figured that out earlier. So. I, I I learned early on, like in that Sinclair two days with the where we put the filters on the output. It's, it's too bright. It's too bright. It's it's too noisy. Okay, we put the filters on the outputs. And the phone starts to ring, and I said, "Wait a minute, okay, we we gotta we gotta give people control over this. We gotta make it so that they can they can change the output filtering, uh, because in some cases you want it, and in some cases you don't." I was just fortunate to work with with some really really talented and creative individuals, and it's a huge industry out there. When you look at video production and film, and working with George Lucas and. The, what they face in the film studio for editing and for the soundtrack. Hey, wait a minute. It's like, you can, you can, oh, no, no, it's, it's, it's really complicated what the user is trying to do. And, and again, you, you want a machine that doesn't get in their way. Yeah, it has to be, it has to be approachable for a, a new person to get the machine and sit down and use it. Ah, uh, but it, it, it's got to have, it's got to have a depth to it. Uh, wait a minute. You set the FM ratio to nine. Wait a minute. Wow, that wow, what is that sound? You know, it's like you might anyway, be working so. if you consider it a palette, you might be working on the primary colors most of the time, but you can dive onto those extremes. And it's it's kind of interesting, really. It's you look at pop music, and that's mainly working in those primary colors, isn't it? It's not they're not extreme sounds, they're trying to get a very, very good tom drum one day, and they're very, very. And when you listen to a well produced pop song, there's pleasure in. It's pretty basic stuff that they put together, but it's done so well. And there's a hook and there's a melody mm. and there's a catch. And the whole is really good. And then you listen to something that's slightly newer or avant-garde and there's different sounds. And, and then we open our, open our ears up a bit more and then that becomes pop music. So to create an instrument that's going to serve pop mm. and those experimental guys has got to do both really well. It's got to do those basic sounds really, really well as well as it can. And then it's got to also allow for the experimentation. And that should be baked into the design. It's not something you can add on mm. afterwards, I don't think. So I've got two final questions. Um, first final question, and for both of you individually perhaps to answer, although you may agree or disagree on this, but n knowing that the regen is obviously like a reinterpretation of a machine from the 80s, a very forward-thinking machine, I suppose... What for you? What is the place of the Synclavier in the kind of modern age? And maybe what you should talk about Regen is just you know what what is what do you want people to know about it that that is unique? I'll answer it first if you if you like. Then I think a lot of what we've talked about makes it unique. And there's other stuff that we didn't get to. 
um, that make it unique. For me, I want it to be as well-loved as the original. If this is working in 40 years' time, like the original one is for Matea, and people are still using it for that one thing, great. We want to create something that people love. Not everyone can love everything, and it's certainly not perfect, but we want to create a tool that people want in their studio, I guess. It's just on the desktop there, and it's people can reach reach for it. Um, I, I, th- I think that's the best way I can answer your question, really. What do you say, Cameron? Well, you know, uh, it, it, it's such a long history I, I'm looking at, and, and because I, I'm looking at, I'm looking at, at it backwards. Uh, first of all, I, I'm very excited that Regen absolutely combines both the old and the new. Uh, the new sounds that are in there with the subtractive synthesis stuff, I, I love. I love playing them. That's probably because they're sounds I didn't have to play with earlier on. But they sound oh, when you add in the chorus and the the unison and stuff, they are just just absolutely gorgeous sounds. Uh, now uh, I I don't know what we're going to be developing next for a, a product. I do hope we we are able to come up with some more products. And this uh, regen captures all the sound design capability uh, of the original. Uh, but for example, it doesn't have a sequencer built into it. It doesn't have the, re- the memory recorder part of it. So to a certain extent, I feel we're halfway there. If I can keep going. There are accessory ports I see on the thing. Lots of USBs, right? Lots of them. And uh, there, there's certainly more functional functionality I want to, I want to add. Yeah. And uh, another button surface and uh, keyboards. There's all sorts of stuff like that we can we can do. Uh, obviously, we have to navigate staying in business and coming out with a product and going to trade shows and 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 sell it. I, I am deeply rewarded by all the feedback I get. Everyone loves the sound, so that helps me sleep at night. Uh, it's a musical instrument. If people likes the way it sounds, uh, okay, they can. Oh, it's too expensive, or I don't like the color, or I do like the color. Uh, you know, but if everyone says, you know what, I like the way it sounds, that is my reward because that's that, that's what I said. I, I didn't want to do anything if people didn't like, and I mean emotionally like the sounds that it made. It, it, it had to make sounds that you said, oh yeah, I enjoyed listening to that, or oh wow, that's very emotional. That's uh, you know, I get scared when I hear that sound. Like I'm supposed to, get, you know, it's like whatever you want. I think. The Synclavier method of sound design in the buttons and that—I think it's here to stay. It's—it's it's a technology that it's a way of working. Like a typical synthesizer, you have VCAs and VCFs and knobs, and I don't know how to use them, so I get a little bit baffled in front of a, a regular uh, piece of modular gear or something like that. But but Synclavier has a way of working that that I think is is here to stay. It's a way of working that 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 stands on its own two feet. Um, above and beyond using a computer, I know there are plugins and you can do a lot of stuff that way too. Uh, but having something at your fingertips that more connects with your right brain and does so spontaneously. So I, I'm extremely grateful that I was able to hook up with Craig and actually make this product out there and done. It has met my expectations. I love the way those buttons feel. I love the way the button, the swiper feels. Um, mm. The way they look you know, too, I don't Alex, tonight, if you turn off all your lights and, and then power it up, I'd love the way it comes up because we didn't paint the buttons. So the red LEDs and blue LEDs diffuse through them. I just, mm. even that. It's like 
I like the f- crossfades when you change screens See? as well. And it that, was, oh, that was a nice touch. That was because we had that. Uh, I did that. Early, I did that early that. on. I said, if it's going to be a screen, it can't be one of these. Like you know, you have a little information panel in your car, and you and it's like, it's like, no, no, come on. It's like you know, Segway. You know, yeah. and what's a great musical instrument? You know, like like a tuba. I don't care. A trombone. Like every musical instrument that's here. Today, like the Mellotron has gone beside the way the wayside, right? Um, but they all they all have this combination. You can express yourselves with them, not just the notes on this on the staff, but with a trombone, you can make all sorts of sounds outside of a, a, a note. I, I think Synclavier Regen. I think it checks all the boxes of, of it, it can make the sounds. It has a way of working. You, you can work in the sunlight. You can work in the studio. You can do polytambral if you want to try and make a whole mix. You can you can concentrate. You have all the modulators. Oh my God, we'll go on and on forever. Hook in any case, computer and uh, yeah. I appreciate this chance to talk to you about it. One final question then, uh, and as someone who's invented at one point invented the future of music technology, um, what is the future of music technology? You know, Alex, I, I, I'll tell you where I'm stumped is that the business model. The, the distribution model is so foreign to me. What's the role of the artist? And I mean, it's always been, it's always been touchy. Like why were the Beatles, the Beatles, but they were at the right place and right time. And the personality that they presented, there was that phenomenon. Well, you know, what is the role of the artist today? You know, like you have to stream. I know that there are still, People that perform live, they're local musicians. I love them. I support them every chance I get. But obviously, where music technology is going, you don't need any more technology to make ones and zeros to record and play back. A computer and a mouse and a screen, that's highly developed. You can do so much in Pro Tools in terms of effects and EQ and mixing and uh, looping and uh, going. I don't even know. It's yeah, well, you're going to get even more genres and even more people doing very niche music because yeah a laptop yeah. audio interface what, what what's what's the next daw where you go yeah so it's genre that's going to come down i mean it's like going to be rap fusion and, genres you know, it's like wait a minute it's all there's such diversity to it artificial intelligence is going to play a role obviously isn't it in some of the creations but i don't think it's going to play a central role interfaces and instruments will get more intelligent to help Hopefully, that's how it's going to work, is to help the human, that's the creative um, element. From the musician's point of view, there's a lot of technical improvements that could be done in in their interface with the sound. Uh, Regen does it. It has a gorgeous little button panel. Ah, There's other button panels that, that could be done, again, to make it easier for them to express themselves. We have titanium, we have aluminum, we ha- have we have all, all the materials. It's it's when you put it together in the package, you know, does it let you really express yourself creatively and not get in your way with yeah. with designing a sound or, or, or making a scene? Certainly the MPE stuff is started to do that for some yeah, people, this, hasn't it? That's, uh, that's exciting. The, innovation. These new, not just keyboards, but the MPE devices. Like the, the Lumitone, the, the microtone and, uh, things. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, that's, that, that, that stuff's going to be interesting. I, d- I don't know where it's going to go. 
your best place to answer this question, yeah. Alex, and put you on the spot. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. You've, you've seen it. You've seen all this stuff. I think, I mean, I've asked this question to every podcast guest on this podcast, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that the interface is how we will, how, well, put it this way, that I agree with you uh, in, the, in the sense that I don't think we need more, um, I don't think we need more DSP cycles to make better music, basically. Yeah. But I think if we have interfaces, that's like when we were talking about the Synclavia, 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 uh, is that, you know, the speed, the fact that you didn't have to assign a track, the fact that you just, I want that, I hear that sound, now I want to record it, that nothing gets in the way. That is the, you know, that's the kind of very subtle but very important innovations that, that mean that, as uh, Simon Franklin said, I don't have to think. And if you if if technology can get out of the way and just allow the brain to music interface to 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 truly flow, then then what more can we ask of technology? Uh, no, that's uh, I think that's a good. A I, good I, was, I, was, I was just going to say that when we're growing up, I read this in a in a music theory book recently. We all know what perfect pitch is, and we all know what a melody is, and we we can do that. We can whistle, can't we? Before we learn the notes, the musical notes and the harmonies and stuff like that. And it, it, it's book work. There's, there's technical effort to actually learn how to play from a sheet of music, for example. And then it's different for a piano to a guitar because the notes are laid out differently. So we already know all this stuff in our head and we're going to pretty soon empower anyone to be a musician. Do you like my, my melody or not? I wasn't classically trained, but who cares, right? You enjoy it or you don't. So I think you were getting to that, 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 it's almost like you don't need too much musical theory to make music because we already know, like when we draw, we know what things look like and we draw, but we weren't classically trained about perspective, for example. Um, maybe someone like me can make a masterpiece, you know, without much musical theory. Who knows? Alex, it's, it's, going to be an, it's still going to be an exciting time. We'll, be, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you in 10 years' time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's harnessing this, the bits and zeros and the ones and zeros and the bits and the bytes it's harnessing that uh, for a really creative person. Oh, we're, we're only the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be new ways that I hope we develop. For uh, What does it mean to be a musician? What is a musical instrument? Okay, well, this is a musical instrument, really. Uh, who, who's to say it's not? Oh, okay, it doesn't have strings. Well, that doesn't mean it's not a musical instrument. It lets your creativity out of the bottle. So there, there'll be more of that. Watch, Watch this space. I don't have to think, said Simon Franklin. Yes, if technology gets in the way, we are sunk. And perhaps if we don't own a synclavier, I would pull from that, like this lesson that we have to ask ourselves whether our technology, that is our particular workstation, whatever that may be, is it serving its purpose? Is it getting out of your way? Are you thinking computer when you use a computer or are you thinking music? And that obviously you could interpret this as a, a suggestion, oh, well, maybe I need different tools or better tools, but it's always easy to think that the grass is greener. And my thought is perhaps we need 
less tools and that what tools we own, we just maybe need to take the time to learn them more thoroughly and master them so that we give ourselves a chance to become subconscious competence at making music. To not think, to just music. Like, that could just be you getting better at using the gear that you have instead of thinking that there's a better way of making music. And so, yeah, it was a lot to think about there. Obviously, as we apply this knowledge of how this like computer worked, it's worth going back and looking at like the way the Synclavier, Synclavier, Synclavier worked. Because there's loads of great articles. I'll link to some, which I researched, like this musines.co.uk, which is an amazing website. It's got loads of historic magazines and it has articles from Sound on Sound and um, I think recording. There are a number of Synclavia, Synclavia, like, you know, historical articles that are worth digging into because they explain how it works. And there's a whole fervent community that's, that's talking about this device. Now, obviously... You yourself can get hold of Synclavia, Synclavia things. There is the Archeria plugin, there is an iPad app, and there is this the Regen, which is this thing that, that they're working on now, which I've tried and is like, it's crackers. I've only had a tiny little bit of time with it. It takes time to learn. It's not like the most obvious device, but, but it is intriguing. And like I put together like a little sort of, you know, proto-housey thing, just, just playing presets that Matia had made. I'm just enjoying the sound. Like, it does sound really good. Uh, it's a really interesting, weird digital synth, and you can do stuff like FMing wave files and resynthesizing wave files. And uh, you can do kind of trad things, or you can do whacked-out strange things, and it sounds pretty banging. Thank you, Cameron and Craig, for your time, and thank you for your insight. Uh, I hope you found it interesting. Now, I did say... Um, in the intro, if you listen to the advertisements, uh, that there was the ad for thonk.co.uk, and I would give you my top tips for soldering. That is, if you want to build your own things, you can be Cameron and uh, Sydney in, you know, the 1970s, just build something and then sell it back to your university. No biggie, don't worry about it. And so how do you solder? Like, is this a thing worth doing? I, I would strongly, strongly urge you to just Forget this whole notion that soldering is hard. It's, it's not. It's just a simple knack. And all you're doing with soldering is that you're heating up the little like contact pad on the PCB and you're heating the little bit of metal, the component that you've got shoved through the hole and you're heating them both up at the same time so that they get hot. And then when they are hot, solder will flow onto them and it will like wick into place and you can remove the soldering iron and it will cool down. And that simple little act, all you need to do is make sure that you've got like a chisel tip soldering iron and the chisel tip will just give you nice contact with the, the plate and the like part. And you're making sure that the tip touches both the PCB, the little ring that you've got on the PCB and the little metal leg that's sticking through. And if the iron is hot and clean, then it will make both of those things hot. You can put the solder onto the metal and it will wick into place. Now, the trick is keeping your soldering iron clean. This was like the thing that, that I messed up for like a good, good few years, it feels, when I first started out. 
And so I'm really like um, fastidious at keeping my soldering iron tip clean. And I recommend getting one of those little bins with wire wool. If you see those ones like the woolly wire bins, because you can basically scriffle your soldering iron into that little bin. And um, what it's not is the little wet sponge, because the wet sponges will kind of reduce the temperature of your iron. Stuff just doesn't seem to get as clean as if you use the little squitchy bin. So I would thoroughly recommend a scritchy bin. Keep scritching the soldering iron tip. And my tip is that I put a little blob of solder on the end of my soldering iron regularly. Put a little fresh blob and then put the iron back in the holder so that there's always fresh solder touching the tip after I've squiffled it in the wire wool. And these two things the wire wool scriffing and the touching the solder to the tip to just retin it and keep it with fresh solder on it help keep the iron clean. And they mean that the iron will make, you know, regular, like will, it will make good electrical contact or the good thermal contact with the part and the little ring that you're soldering to. And you basically, you just need a soldering iron. You need one of those wire wool bins. You need perhaps a desoldering gun or a desoldering braid. Um, these are things you can get from Thonk. Uh, they're not expensive and they can help you undo mistakes that you've made. And some snippers, like little, you know, tin snips, also available from Thonk. I had some really good ones and I've lost them. Um, but in any case, you probably only need to spend about 50 quid on actual like gear to solder. And then just watch some YouTube videos that show the technique there's nothing more to it than that. And if I sound like I'm a sort of shill for, for Thonk, well, I am because they're paying me to, to advertise. But I also truly, truly believe in, in DIY Eurac and, and just making your own stuff because it's something that I've done. I've bought stuff from Thonk and it really is worth your time. Like there's a whole world, not just from Thonk, but from loads of other like there's things on Modwiggler with like people doing DIY kits and builds and PCBs. And if you really get into it, it's just the whole world of stuff. And it's, it's good for saving money, of course, not only saving money, but for accessing other gear. Like for example, you know, the Turing machine. Like if you want to own a dyed in the wool actual music thing, Turing machine, then you have to build one. So this getting just this soldering thing sorted. And so you know what you're doing with soldering. That's all you have to do. And then you've got access to these cool tools that just aren't really available off the shelf. Um, so I'm a big fan of it. Um, I do have a YouTube video, which I actually realised I did seven years ago for Future Music. And if you go on YouTube, that old website, type in DIY Eurorack Radio Music. I did a sort of combo, like how to solder and, you know, what you need to know, which basically just repeats what I just said to you. Um, and a little demo of the radio music, which is another great module that I use loads. Put that into YouTube and you might want to watch that video, but get into soldering. It's worth, it's worth your time and it can open up a world of interesting gear. Not least, uh, you can also take advantage of Thonk's offer. So thanks, Thonk. Um, and, but first, I want to say thank you to Synclavier, 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 Synclavier. Check out the Regen, which is their new synth. You can get it at Signal Sounds. 
That's, I mean, that's just actually, you just actually can. Uh, they do sell it. Uh, so thank you, signalsounds.com. That's where you can get the regen and all other manner of wonderful boxes. And stonk.co.uk. Code Mylar for ever. Mylar for the number four EVA will get you 10% off until the end of October 2023 on your first order. And watch the skies next month. We have another code. Please consider sponsoring on Patreon if you enjoy this episode and want to support future bleeps. That is patreon.com forward slash Mylar Melodies. There is a community of people on the Discord. Um, there are old videos and sort of secret things that you can discover if you subscribe. And you get previews of videos and podcasts before they are made available to the public. So uh, so please consider sponsoring. That is how we keep this going. And I would be hugely grateful. That's it. Gosh, another month. I hope you've had a wonderful month. And I bid you an even wonderfuller one coming. Be well, and we'll see you next time.